What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Kelly Evans on this uh, Wednesday before Christmas. Here's what's ahead. Uh, what's the deal with stimulus? The president calling on Congress to change the bill, the hard-fought bill, but markets seemingly unfazed by another chapter in the D.C. drama. We've got the latest for you there. Plus, uh, the winners on this stimulus bill, such as they can be counted now, including one stock that is up more than 200% this year. The name and what could catapult it even higher and a push to unionize Amazon workers, a warehouse gold rush and high scores for gaming stocks in 2020. That is all ahead in our rapid fire segment. But we begin with the markets and Dom Chu with the numbers, green numbers today. High scores for a lot of parts of the market right now, not just the gaming stocks. Check out the major indices, 250 point gains nearly for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Almost 1% at this point here, 3708 the level for the S&P 500. That represents a half a percent still, though. A very, very decent gain on today in the Nasdaq Composite, lagging only up about two-tenths of 1%. What we are going to take a look is the extreme outperformance as of late for the small cap stocks. Now, this is the Russell 2000 small cap ETF, ticker IWM. You can see it has now recently, in the last few weeks, overtaken the S&P 500. Remember, it was a real laggard at one point throughout the course of the year. And by the way, just since the end of September, roughly around here, the returns for the small cap stocks three times what they were for the S&P 500, up 10% for those S&P 500 stocks, the index up about 33% for the Russell 2000. And then the best performing sector by a decent amount so far the month of December has been energy. Yes, it's been beaten down very badly by far in a way, the worst performing uh, sector on a year-to-date basis. Still though, crude oil prices up two and a half percent near the highs of the session right now. Energy stocks as a result at the highs of the day right now. And by the way, Halliburton and Diamondback Energy Yes, they got beaten up badly, but these are two of the best-performing energy stocks in the S&P 500's energy sector. Tyler, we'll keep an eye and see if that momentum continues if COVID gets under control next year and the economy really starts to open up. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. We'll see you uh, later this hour, if not then, in the next hour. Stocks near the highs of the session uh, shaking off worries about the future of that stimulus bill, at least for now, that bill that President Trump uh, so roundly criticized. In fact, stocks have shaken off most of the bad news this year with the S&P up 15 percent in 2020. But with the market at historic highs, are stocks overvalued at these levels? Let's talk about it with Jason Brady, president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management, and Hugh Johnson, chairman and chief investment officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors. Welcome to both of you, Hugh. It's good to see you again. Uh, you say that the S&P is modestly overvalued by about 8.5%, but you are also simultaneously a little worried that it may be lapsing into uh, that sort of level of exuberance where things get troublesome. Uh, why do you say yeah. that? Uh, yeah, Tyler, uh, good point. Uh, yeah, I think we've moved from what we might call a very rational stage of investment into something a little less than rational. Now, I wouldn't say 
we were seeing that the level of optimism objectively measured is getting a little bit higher. It's about double what it was a month ago, and you don't like to see that. I would not say, though, and I would caution everybody, I would not say that this is sort of uh, moved into a state of uh, exuberance. I don't think it's moved even further than that into euphoria, which really bottom line says, yes, we're overvalued, and that's not good news. But I don't think that this is sort of a mania as of yet. It could get there, but I don't think we're there yet. We're just simply overvalued, and that's going to be sort of a headwind that we're going to face for the remainder of December and I think the, I think the first part of the first quarter. Yeah, you cite as, as signs of potential uh, exuberance such things as the performance of Bitcoin, the performance of IPOs and SPACs, among us. This is the year of the SPAC, Jason. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about about the idea, uh, you know, if the market is in fact overvalued by a little bit or a lot, however you want to see it, what has to happen in 2021 is that earnings have to have to grow into those valuations. Do you expect they will? Uh, look, I think we're in the midst of uh, a transformation to a cyclical recovery. And the market has discounted a lot based on what the Federal Reserve has done. So as we look at it, you know, the Fed has been Santa Claus to grow stocks, but it's really been festivist for value investors. You know, they've got, <laughs> they've got a lot of problems with those people at the Fed. And so as we see that cyclical recovery, you should see earnings grow into the value names. I'm not sure earnings can grow into the growth name. So I think that rotation is significant. All right, let's talk about one area that you really like, and I want to drill down on it and get some names there, Jason, and that is banks. Why do you see 2021 as a good year for banks, both good and mid-sized? Well, first of all, those are quintessential value names. You talked about energy stocks outperforming. As we look at the market, bank stocks from a sector perspective are right there, right? At the same time, when we're seeing releases, reserve releases on the horizon for banks because they reserved so much for the COVID pandemic, and now those come out, plus the recent news from the Fed saying, hey, look, not only can you release those reserves in earnings, but you actually pay them out in dividends because your balance sheet is so good. This is really a great catalyst in the context of some of that rotation. And it's just a really good way for investors to balance the rest of their portfolio, which probably for many folks has gotten very, very heavy into tech names and things that are very growthy. You know, I think, uh, you know, you, uh, J- uh, Jason, you and Hugh might agree that that sort of cyclicals look like a play. I see, Hugh, that you like uh, consumer discretionary industrials, some technology and materials. Um, but, I, but where you two disagree, it seems, Hugh, is on international shares. You do not favor them except for emerging markets. Jason, you do favor them. Let's get that one going. Hugh, you first. Well- yeah, f- favor is a, is a very strong word. I, I uh, don't favor them. I underweight uh, international. The primary thing I look at, uh, quite frankly, is, is the uh, relative performance. Uh, it's been a long time now that relative performance of both emerging and developed has been, has been very poor. In other words, they've underperformed the S&P 500. And quite frankly, as a part of my discipline, I don't like to buy things that are underperforming the S&P 500 when my goal or objective is to outperform the S&P 500. Plus the fact, when I start to do the numbers, I don't think that prospects, quite frankly, when I look at developing or emerging, although emerging is starting to get better when you see China starting to post some pretty good numbers, um, the, the truth is is that the numbers are getting a little bit better. It's starting to get a little bit closer of a competition, uh, but I've got to see much better relative performance. And, and of the two, emerging is outperforming developed. Uh, and so that's where I would put, if you're going to put something in international, I would make sure that you 
you underweight international, but you overweight emerging versus developed. All right, let's uh, <clears throat> let uh, Jason get in here. You say that the shift from U.S. as 2020's market leader to international names is in full tilt. How do you respond to what uh, Hugh just the case that Hugh just made? Sure. So obviously, emerging markets are part of that. So I agree with that piece. And and frankly, China is a growing portion of emerging markets, something that we pay a lot of attention to at Thornburg. But I think it's a, my view on, on developed international is, is pretty much in keeping with what I just talked about around some of that rotation. So the U.S. is much heavier weight into IT, um, outside the U.S., much less so. You've also seen a little bit of the loss of American exceptionalism around rates. So with the Fed keeping rates very, very low and real rates very, very low, what you see is the decline in the dollar. And we expect that to continue to be a pressure on the market. And frankly, for a U.S.-based investor, looking internationally for some diversified returns is, is a good idea here. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a great holiday season. We'll see you next year. Hugh Johnson and Jason Brady. And if you're still looking for stock buying opportunities, why don't you head to CNBC Pro. Fundstrat's Tom Lee has a list of stocks that he says will see massive relief and lead the markets in 2021. Go to cnbc.com slash pro to see those names. Well, the U.S. government and Pfizer have reached a deal to provide more vaccine doses as the rollout continues. And Meg Terrell joins us now with the very latest. Hi, Meg. Hey, Tyler. Well, this new deal is for 100 million additional doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. That's for 70 million to be delivered by the end of June, an additional 30 million by the end of July. They're paying almost $2 billion for these 100 million doses, which was the same that they paid for the first 100 million, some of which, of course, are getting rolled out right now. So this adds a lot more to the supply for the U.S. for the two vaccines, of course, that have shown 95% efficacy in phase three trials from Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna, we've secured 200 million doses of uh, as well, uh, also to be delivered uh, over the first and second quarter uh, of next year, uh, some of which are also on their way out this week. Uh, so between those two, enough for 200 million Americans because uh, these require two doses uh, and an expectation that we should be seeing data from Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca early in 2021 as well, with the hope that those will work too and add to the supply. Now, in terms of when people might start to be able to get access to these, uh, Operation Warp Speed has put out some pretty aggressive targets, saying there should be enough doses distributed for 20 million people by the end of this month, an additional 30 million by the end of January, and an additional 50 million by the end of February. That would be 100 million people who at least got their first shot. However, whether the country can actually vaccinate that many people over that period of time is still an open question. Tyler, we are hearing already that those 20 million that are going out in December are going to take into at least the first week of January to get administered. Yeah. And there's an uh, update from Operation Warp Speed this afternoon, so we'll expect to hear a lot more. Well, that, that was, as I looked at those numbers you put out there, uh, a, obviously, A, the Pfizer news is good, because as we were speaking, I think it was Monday, with Dr. Rasmussen of uh, Georgetown, she was concerned that, that we weren't going to come close to inoculating 300 million people. Uh, we're getting at least a little closer, but, but the availability of doses is a very different thing than the ability to administer those doses, right? Absolutely. This is a huge campaign that we are doing right now. And already we are starting to see timelines slip. I mean, people think that that idea that we could get 100 million people having their first shots by the end of February is very optimistic. Um, and we'll just have to see how the cadence is set over the next few weeks. So it turns out, Meg, that there were more doses with Pfizer per vial than they originally thought. And now we're hearing that the same may be true with Moderna. That's good news, I guess. 
Yeah, Governor Cuomo just said actually in his update today that the Moderna vials, which uh, should include 10 doses, some of them actually include 11. So that would be 10% more supply. Mm -hmm. you know, we heard the same thing from Pfizer, which are five dose vials. Some include six or even seven, uh, which is 20% more. The FDA has weighed in on the Pfizer situation and said if there is enough for an entire full dose, absolutely use it. Just don't mix doses from different vials and presumably might say the same thing for Moderna's. All right, Meg, thank you very much for being on top of this as you have been for a very full year of 2020. Meg Terrell. Let's go to Robert Frank now with a news alert. Hi, Robert. Uh, Tyler, remember this case we've been talking about, Bill Gross versus his neighbor in California? Well, an Orange County, California judge just ruled in this case. It was an embarrassing case for Gross and today a humiliating defeat on all fronts. Basically, the judge granting a civil harassment restraining order against Bill Gross by his neighbor, Mark Tofik. Now, basically, Gross is not allowed to come near his neighbor. He's not allowed to play music. He's not allowed to harass him in any way or disturb the peace. Now, the judge coming down hard on Gross throughout this case, basically saying that because Gross complained, uh, Gross's neighbor complained about Gross's sculpture, Gross played loud music, including Gilligan's Island, on a loop until late at night, disturbing the peace of his neighbor. So his judge ruling for the neighbor in this case. Now, Gross had filed a case against his neighbor. He lost that side as well. There's not a big financial penalty here. Uh, the attorney for Mark Tofik, the neighbor, has asked Gross to pay the legal fees. It's unclear whether that will be granted or what those fees will be. Now, we should say that throughout this case, Gross has been painted as a, quote, short-fused billionaire, again, playing the Gilligan's Island theme song until 11 or 12 at night in retaliation for his neighbor citing his sculptures being off code uh, for the town. And uh, again, this is a case that Gross tried to basically cut short with a charitable donation a couple weeks ago to head this off. That did not work. And so now, uh, again, there will be this restraining order and we'll see whether there is a financial penalty as well. But again, Tyler, throughout these couple of weeks of testimony is not painted the former billionaire Bond King in the greatest light uh, and now losing with the court. God, but it's such a good song, Robert. It's such a good song. And that's song. what Bill Gross said. He said, he said, I love the song. It's a catchy tune. We love to dance to it. And that's why we play it over and over and over until midnight. I bet he, the judge not buying it. I bet he does his yoga to it as well. Robert Frank, thank you. Have a great holiday. Coming up, the Thanks, president God. wants Congress to redo the stimulus bill. 5,000 pages of bill. But uh, will that order actually do anything? We have the very latest. Plus, solar stocks have been on fire this year. The solar ETF, TAN, more than tripling in 2020 and hitting record highs. And the stimulus bill could keep that rally going. We'll tell you why next. The exchange returns in two minutes. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back, everybody. In an 11th hour move, President Trump calling on Congress to change the stimulus bill, demanding more money for Americans. So what now? Kayla Tausche joins us live with the very latest. This was a plot twist uh, that not many people expected, Kayla. That's an understatement, to say the least, Tyler. Members of Congress were already back home in their districts for the holidays when President Trump's call came last night to reopen negotiations on coronavirus release, which had finally produced a deal after a months-long standoff. House uh, Democrats jumped at the chance immediately to increase those direct payments to Americans to $2,000 apiece, saying they'd put forward legislation on Thursday morning to do just that. But Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in a letter to colleagues, noted that House rules require Republicans to support that effort in order to move forward. And she issued this further challenge, writing, quote, if the president truly wants to join us in $2,000 payments, he should call upon Leader McCarthy to agree to our unanimous consent request. Now, McCarthy has a tough choice here. Stand with his members, which uh, clearly would not want to go forward with these payments or with Trump. His office ha hasn't commented on which direction they'll go in. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans are of the mind that the changes wouldn't even make it past the House because they would need unanimous support. But if by some miracle they did, the $500 billion price tags of the checks alone would probably deem that dead on arrival in the Senate. Senate aides also note that the final deal, including the spending that the president criticized and the size of the checks, reflect the administration's own offer and their reaction on the Hill, according to one aid is of irritation and befuddlement. So Tyler? two quick questions here, Kayla. Does the original bill have sufficient votes behind it to override a presidential veto? It does. And notably, the president in his taped message last night did not say explicitly that he would veto the bill. He merely said, uh, if you don't make these changes, uh, then perhaps a new administration or another administration uh, would have to get this effort across the finish line. So suggesting he might block it, but not explicitly saying that he would. But that again poses another challenge to Republicans. Yes. If the president vetoes it and signals that he doesn't support it, would they then want to continue to throw their support behind something that they don't they don't you know ha have in common with the executive branch at that point? So it puts them in a really difficult position, and it specifically puts the two senators from Georgia in a really difficult position. They want to get this money in voters' pockets by the time there's that runoff in so, Georgia on January 5th. And this, and this current Congress goes out of existence uh, on what? Uh, at, on January 1. Second question, why would the president wait to this moment? It's not like the, the, uh, the checks, the $600 checks were a surprise. Who's he trying to, to stick it to here? There are a few different theories about why he chose to interject himself now when throughout the course of these negotiations, uh, he was absent for much of these discussions. And perhaps, Tyler, uh, if he had been pushing this effort and been pushing these $2,000 checks back in July or August, uh, that might have drummed up more support among the electorate ahead of the presidential election and had a different outcome there. So why he's doing this during his final uh, weeks in office is really unclear. There is one school of thought that perhaps he wanted to uh, drive the news cycle away from some controversial pardons that he issued yesterday evening. Uh, there's another school of thought that perhaps he wants his legacy not to be of uh, this blistering 
lingering virus that is ravaging the country, but instead uh, of putting this lucrative check in many Americans' pockets, uh, unclear exactly what is inside his head, but those are a few of the competing theories here. He's unhappy with Senator McConnell, obviously, and this uh, could be a way to uh, show that unhappiness as well, I suppose. Kayla, thank you. Fantastic. All righty. Sure. Uh, renewable energy stocks could get a boost from the stimulus package uh, passed by Congress earlier this week if it goes into law. Barron's writing that tax credit extensions in the bill could be worth tens of billions of dollars to the solar and wind industries. The solar ETF TAN is up almost 250 percent this year, more than tripling its price and is on pace for its best year ever. Joining us with more is Avi Saltzman, senior writer at Barron's, who wrote the story. What is it, Avi, in the bill specifically that opens up uh, this sector uh, to uh, makes it more ripe for investment? So uh, thanks, Tyler. So the change that happens in the bill is that these tax credits were supposed to fall from 26 percent uh, this year to 22 percent next year and then be phased out entirely after that. This is what makes solar cost competitive with other sources of energy like natural gas. And as soon as those subsidies start to fall off, the concern was that uh, solar was going to get a little bit less cost competitive. Uh, by uh, extending the credits for another two years at least, uh, Congress is going to give this, ener this uh, energy source a huge boost, uh, probably make it much more cost competitive over the next two years. And, uh, and continue this rally that, like you said, has made the stocks triple uh, just this year. Is this part of the COVID relief bill or part of the, of the spending bill, or does it make a difference, really, Avi? It is part of the COVID relief bill. Um, it, it's seen as a, as a way to, to boost the economy. Other countries mm -hmm. like Italy have also made things like solar and renewable energy part of their COVID relief bills, in part as a way to just boost the economy and also help homeowners install solar if maybe they hadn't been able to in the past. So let's get down to some names, which uh, I gather you cite in your article, excellent article in Barron's. Uh, these would include solar installers, the people who, who uh, do it, the equipment makers, uh, even nuclear power component makers and, and, and other companies. Take us through uh, some of the names there that might be beneficiaries. Sure. Uh, one of the biggest beneficiaries is a California company called Sunrun. They develop and install solar panels on people's roofs. Uh, SunPower does the same sort of thing. Uh, 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 equipment makers like Solar Edge and uh, First Solar, which manufactures panels uh, in the United States and elsewhere. So th those are companies that should do really well off of this, um, you know, get large tax credits and, and be able to... Uh, mm -hmm to get money uh, down to their bottom line, as well as nuclear power, you know, uh, a power source that sometimes gets short shrift in the renewables debate. Uh, a company like BWX Technologies that makes components for nuclear power plants, uh, they're going to get a grant through the energy department, it looks like, or they're going to uh, also give some money to General Electric, which puts money into nuclear right. and makes money off of, uh, off of wind power these days. All right. Avi, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. And, of course, you want to uh, play the uh, ETF. TAN is the ticker symbol there. Avi Salzman, Barron's, thank you. And coming up, one billion. That's how many hotel rooms will go unsold by Christmas as COVID continues to batter that industry. We look at the hardest hit markets and what it will take to recover in 2021. And while the tech giants will face challenges around the digital ads next year, there are other areas that could be quite lucrative, and we will tell you what they are next.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at the markets right now. They are all in the green. Uh, the high for the Dow of the day was up 269, so you can see that it's uh, very, very close to that right now. The S&P up 22, or about six-tenths of a percent, uh, and the Nasdaq is higher as well as you see there. 2021 is going to bring new restrictions around digital ads, but there is a valuable untapped opportunity still lurking around the web, and Julia Borston has the story. Hi, Julia. Well, Tyler, Facebook has warned about headwinds to digital ad targeting. Now, that's in part coming from Apple's new operating system, which will make it very easy for users to opt out of ad targeting based on their activity on their phones. But another big change is Google is joining Chrome and Firefox in phasing out third-party cookies that enable ads to follow you around the web. That'll happen by the end of next year. And we are expecting more privacy regulations. After last week, the FTC directed nine companies, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Snap, to provide information about their data gathering, algorithms, and advertising. And the EU just proposed new tech regulation including letting users see and modify Google's parameters for ad targeting. Truist analyst Yusuf Squally tells us he believes Google and Facebook's market share is peaking and could decline after next year. But on the flip side, the ad giants have a massive new opportunity in shopping. eMarketer forecasts that worldwide retail e-commerce will reach $6.3 trillion by 2024. That's up from $3.9 trillion this year, saying as e-commerce is Facebook's largest ad vertical, it's well positioned to lead the industry there. Guys? All right. Thank you very much. Julia Borston. And now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hey, Sue. Hello, Ty. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The United Nations Human Rights Office says it is, quote, deeply concerned about President Trump's pardon of four former Blackwater contractors. They were convicted in a 2007 massacre in Baghdad that left more than a dozen Iraqi civilians dead. A U.N. spokesperson says the pardons will embolden others to commit similar acts in the future. In California, Los Angeles police are still searching for the gunman who fatally shot a woman at a Kohl's department store. Police say they believe the man knew his victim. In Pennsylvania, helmet cam footage of a firefighter rescuing a dog from a burning barn. Ryan Balmer had to go into that burning building when the dog wouldn't come out. But with a little help, the dog jumped out a window and ran straight to his owner. So a happy ending there. There he goes. Look at that guy. 
Wow. I know, pretty dramatic, That's right, a great, Boy, that barn was burning fast. It Sue. sure was. All right, Sue, thank you, you very it. much. Good story for the holidays. And here is what is ahead on the exchange. Some U.S. Amazon workers are one step closer to unionizing how private equity is cashing in on e-commerce. And video games leveled up this year. All that and more in today's edition of Rapid Fire. All right, let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire, and here with their takes are Dominic Chu, Leslie Picker, and John Fort. Let's start with uh, Amazon. This is as good a place as any. Amazon warehouse workers uh, just got one step closer to unionizing. Uh, the e-commerce giant and a group of workers in Alabama agreed to crucial details on how many and which types of employees could vote to join a union. No official word yet on when a formal vote might happen probably next year. John Fort, Amazon has been pretty staunch in opposing unionization. Uh, Whole Foods, uh, one of their subsidiaries, also the same. They haven't, they've fought back against unions. What's changed and why is this battle taking place in Bessemer, Alabama? Well, I don't know exactly why it's taking place in Alabama, Tyler, but this is important because of the trend, uh, the movement that we've seen throughout 2020 of big companies, particularly tech companies, getting stronger, more relied upon, and arguably frontline workers uh, being more at risk and really suffering in this kind of pandemic-fueled recession. I mean, Amazon's workers, the same ones who are allowing this e-commerce process to work, are those very same frontline workers who have been disadvantaged during this time. So it's important from a labor standpoint and from a culture of business standpoint there. Also interesting because Amazon is pushing for this union vote to happen in person instead of by mail-in ballot. Think about that. Like part of the whole reason why Amazon is so popular this year is because people want to do things <laughs> distanced and by mail. Uh, the, the union wants that same thing for this vote and Amazon does not. A, a great irony there. Dom, uh, the stock has been sort of uh, basically flat since the late summer. Uh, what would unionization mean if it becomes, uh, if it sticks, not just in Alabama, but elsewhere? If you look at the assumptions for what drives valuations, not that Amazon is the typical kind of valuation case for academia or anywhere else, but it comes down to corporate profits, corporate revenues, the, the, the kind of the financials behind it. If you start to value a company differently, it will be oftentimes because the profile has changed for the company. Whether unionization does add to more costs, some would argue it adds to more inefficiencies within the workplace and everything else, while it does then boost the actual wages of those people who are working there, that might start to change some of the investor kind of appetite for some of these types of stocks. Now, that's not to say that Amazon goes away. It just means that people say, hey, you know what, if wage costs are going to be this and they're projected to be this over time, this could change the way that we value the company over that time span as well. And by the way, if you take a look at the Amazon kind of profile right now, there's been a case that they've been making to workers right now that there are benefits and drawbacks to being part of a union, something I'm sure that's going to play out in a huge debate when that kind of vote starts to take place next year. This has certainly been the case in the, in, in the specific case of Whole Foods where they made the case very strongly that there were advantages and disadvantages. I'd, I'd take the over on the idea that Amazon's not going away. I don't think it's going away <laughs> anytime soon. While we're on the topic of warehouses, uh, the e-commerce boom uh, has demand for storage facilities going through the roof and those stocks are heading higher. Public storage, CubeSmart, Life Storage, 
all up nearly 10% or more in the past year. And those gains have caught the eyes of private equity firms. Leslie, you have been following this for us. It's not just storage facilities, but it's also distribution facilities. And who are the big players in PE who are moving in here? Every aspect of the supply chain and private equity has had its eye on this space for a while, and especially so this year. The stat that really caught my eye, Tyler, is this idea that for every $1 billion in incremental e-commerce sales, uh, or revenue, uh, they need an additional $1.25 million or million square feet of warehouse space to support that additional uh, e-commerce sales growth. So uh, for that, the biggest, biggest player in the private equity world that's been looking at this has been Blackstone. They have about $90 billion in assets under management in these types of facilities. $90 billion. And the big benefit for private equity firms that have gotten into this space in a big way is that as you see demand rising, and especially for those types of warehouses in areas close to uh, urban areas where people are wanting their deliveries quicker, it's important to be nearer to the source of uh, that purchasing power. Uh, those warehouses have gone up tremendously in valuations, and it's also allowing the owners of these warehouses to charge more in rent. So uh, it's been a big return on investment this year for a lot of these firms. Uh, the question, though, Tyler, is whether that continues in the future if e-commerce, if this e-commerce growth that we've seen is sticky enough to allow them to continue uh, capitalizing on these investments. Yeah, the, these are, these are in many cases, correct me if I'm wrong here, Leslie, the, these companies, whether it's Blackstone or KKR, are, are actually buying warehouses or storage facilities from existing companies. They're not building them. They're not... That's right. Uh, absorbing whole companies or buying from Iron Mountain or whomever. That's right. They are buying them from other companies. Typically, that's that's the norm of, of that tr uh, investment there. And then they will have an operator actually manage the facility. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that is oftentimes even leased out to another company. Uh, so there yeah. is kind of a chain of command there. But certainly private equity has been uh, viewing this as an attractive investment uh, over the last few years. All right. What would a rapid fire be, folks, without a story about Apple? Apple reportedly ditching thousands of video game apps from its platform in China under pressure from Beijing. According to the Wall Street Journal, Apple warning the Chinese game developers, warning Chinese game developers this month that a host of titles were at risk of removal from the App Store there. The purge comes as China is stepping up its efforts to police Internet con content, including censoring hundreds of apps like TripAdvisor without any clear explanation why. John Fort, this is kind of in your domain. I, I guess I get it with TripAdvisor. You don't want to see negative reviews if you're China of hotels that are owned by the, uh, by the Chinese People's Army or, or, or whatever. But gaming, what, what are they going after here? Well, you know what this reminds me of, Tyler? Mm. The United States. I mean, th think about <laughs> what uh, almost seemed to be happening with TikTok and with Huawei. We, we had U.S. Uh, U.S. government wanting to say that simply because uh, a company is Chinese without any specific technology or data related reason, we want to ban you from doing business here. And we had courts say, you know what, you can't exactly do that the way that you wanted to U.S. government. We've got this thing, due process, it's kind of important here. Well, they don't have that in China, but this idea of being able to, to issue blanket bans without a very specific reason behind them. Yes, uh, in this capitalist system that tends to be bad for business, China's doing it. There are some in the U.S. who want to do it, but it, 
it's problematic if you're trying to build a but, business. But isn't there a distinction here, John, between why the United States ostensibly says they want uh, to to ban TikTok? Nope. Uh, well, it isn't the nope. content; it's the privacy, right? It's nope. The I mean, Tyler, uh, that was that was the kind of red herring that was thrown out there. But if it's really about privacy, then construct really good rules for privacy and protecting mm -hmm. data. And had they done that, then maybe we wouldn't have this solar winds issue that we have. I mean, all the very same things that they were worried about mm -hmm. China doing, they now believe Russia did using a U.S. company. So mm -hmm. if you want to protect data, protect data. Mm -hmm. Don't actually create boogeymen out of, uh, you know, sure, actually dangerous global rivals who have really concerning policies. But just saying China bad is not a technology policy. It does not protect data. Mm -hmm. Dom, any thoughts here? Oh, here's what I would say. I'd say if you're a company doing business in China, this is something that you expect, right? That this idea that the Chinese Communist Party, the government there can kind of willy-nilly say whatever they want and do whatever they want because they can. They're a command and control economy. They can say, if you're doing business in our country, this is the way you're going to do it, or you just won't do business. Talk to all the other tech companies who can't do business in China because of it. So at mm -hmm. this point here, this is a situation where Apple, yes, is probably saying to themselves, this was bound to happen eventually. The question is whether or not they actually continue to throw resources at this kind of a an issue there without having any kind of a recourse later on down the line. Let's stick with uh, the gaming sector. Finally, uh, it, it was a good year for the game developers. Uh, big players all soaring in 2020. EA up about 31%. Activision Blizzard 50%. Take-Two up 65%. Activision's president appeared on CNBC earlier today and spoke about how the shift to online gaming helped the industry take off around the globe. So we went from a model, as you said, where we used to sh ship a, a game every 12 months or every 24 months, depending on the franchise, to an always-on engagement. And I think that's what has really changed in consumer behavior and consumer habits. Players want to be always-on and have the game available wherever they may be. I would say always-on, John Fort, describes my house <laughs> and my, my son and his friends. I mean, it has been an incredible growth area. Now gaming bigger than the sports business and the theater business combined. I'm telling you, in terms of time spent, my son spends more time on the games than he does, and he's a sports freak, than he does watching the real thing. Yeah, and that guy was on Squawk Alley. I love that show, too. I love Power Lunch, too, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, not only is that happening, but you've got, uh, take a look at what Epic Games is doing with Fortnite. They're incorporating Marvel characters into it. They're pulling characters from all these different universes, engaging the players. This is in entertainment at a whole different platform scale than games had before, back when, you know, maybe you got a new game and a franchise out once a year. Now they're putting out new features and new experiences on a regular, almost monthly basis. That's a platform play that's on the scale of what Apple and Amazon and Google are trying to do, and that's the ambition level right. of some of these big gaming players. My, 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 I'm gonna to turn to Leslie here. Have, has, has the gaming boom come into your house yet? It has not. Yeah. <laughs> I will you say have that. You that to look forward to then. We, I know, I know. Right now, my son's only one, so. Luckily for us and, and for our bank accounts, he has not quite gotten into the gaming world just yet. Uh, but I will say for next year, one thing that I'm looking forward to to see how receptive the market is uh, to the Roblox IPO. This is a, a big new play on gaming and actually for a younger demographic and sort of a different type of platform where you've got a bunch of content creators uh, that can use the platform to create uh, as well as play games. So clearly there is 
uh, increasing demand, increasing innovation in this space, and a, a lot to look forward to in 2021. Yeah, I'm sure the games are already in Fort's household with his crew. But, uh, Dom, you're still a little young. I, so I, I'm a, <laughs> I, I have two gaming consoles in my house. I've got two Xboxes in our house right now. I am a former gamer. I don't play as much with two kids these days and two dogs. But I will say this. Because the, everything is so front and center for the gaming industry right now, there's a huge spotlight on them. With great power and great stock price appreciation comes great responsibility. Just ask the creators and publishers of Cyberpunk 2077, a very embarrassing debut for that big game. It's been one of the most highly anticipated games out there. And so when you have that much attention being paid, you got to execute flawlessly or you will be embarrassed. Just ask those guys over there at Cyberpunk 2077. Somehow Cyberpunk 2027, 2077 got by me, but uh, that shows you how uncool I am. Thanks, folks. We appreciate it. Have a great holiday. We'll see you. Dom Chu, Leslie Picker, John Ford. Appreciate it. Coming up, shares of Disney higher today with Wells Fargo and Rosenblatt upping their price targets above 200 bucks on the streaming business. Disney's climbed more than 40% over the past three months. So we're going to take a look at the other streamers in 2020 and what's next for 2021. And quick check on the uh, market. So with the NASDAQ just hitting a record high, we're back in two. back everybody subscriber growth uh, uh, accelerated for streaming services in 2020 as countries around the world were under lockdown netflix still the most popular but disney plus was really the success story of 2020 reaching 86 million subscribers so far and let's see how the stocks have fared this year netflix the biggest gainer up 60 percent for the year disney bounced back for a 20 percent gain Comcast, which is also CNBC's parent company, up 11%. Their Peacock offering began. And HBO Max's parent company, down 26%. That parent is AT&T. Will the momentum for the streamers continue in 2021? And can AT&T turn it around? Joining us now is Andrew Wallenstein, president and chief media analyst at the Variety Intelligence Platform. That is the publisher of the Variety 500. That's an index of the media industry's heavy hitters. I do not appear on it, Andrew, and I'm, I'm annoyed. How, how, how could that happen? Sorry. We're 501. I was, five, I was thinking with 500 media heavy hitters, maybe it would have been easier to pick uh, the ones who didn't make the list because that's a lot of hitters, man. So let's talk, it, about, it let's talk about the streamers and, and the beneficiaries here. Disney is most interesting to me because they, what, they debuted about a year ago, a little more than, 86 million. And this is a company that has seen really one of the hearts of its business destroyed this year, the parks and hotels. And yet the stock's up 20%. It just tells you what the market values, which is the future of Disney as they go all in on Disney+. Plus. I mean, it's remarkable how this service has kept the lights on at a time where every other piece of the Disney business is struggling. TV, films, theme parks. And I think what you're going to see is it's going to set up an interesting rivalry in the long term with Netflix. It was unthinkable in the long term that Disney would be able to match, say, the global subscriber footprint of Netflix. And now the unthinkable is actually realistic. Yeah, Netflix is still motoring along there. Sixty uh, percent subscriber growth. I'm sorry, subscribers, 195 million. The stock is up 60 percent. This company 
does not ever cease to amaze me, its ability to grow. And the pandemic clearly has been a great stay-at-home play for them. It certainly has. I mean, what happened in the first half of the year, it, it drove an obscene uptick for Netflix. And they had a great year by any stretch of the imagination. I do think going into 2021, however, that's going to make for some tough compares. I mean, there's just no way you're going to see subscriber growth in 21 like they had in 20. But make no mistake, they're going to be a very tough competitor for a very long time. Let's look at Warner and HBO Max and AT&T there. That company saying they are going to release their, their movies next year to, to their streaming service on the same day they will release to theaters. This seems like good news for HBO Max, potentially, but very bad news for the theaters. Yeah, I, I, I cannot tell you the shockwaves that have been emanating from that announcement in Hollywood for weeks now. The exhibition business is going to be seriously destabilized because so many people are going to be fine watching this on HBO Max. Profit participants in Hollywood are also very angry about this. What are the money that they are going to have lost because this isn't coming out in theaters? However, I do think this arrangement will be very good for HBO Max. I think they're going to see a big subscriber boost in 2021. A lot of people are going to want to see big movies like Matrix 4, Dune, without ever leaving their house. And I guess you could also, I mean, if, if someone from the theater business were sitting here, they would probably uh, fight back and say, there are people who are going to want to get out of their houses and go to a theater, presuming they can do so and feel safe at the same time. So it's too early, really, to, for me. I, I should be careful when I say it's going to hurt the theaters. Probably will, but in the long run, uh, there's, a, there's a question there. Andrew Wallenstein, thank you. Appreciate it. Anytime. Still ahead, the pandemic putting the brakes on travel big time in 2020. A look at just how badly the hotel industry got crushed and what it needs to recover. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Hotel stocks having a decent past two months with Marriott climbing more than 25 percent as COVID vaccines bolster reopening hopes. But 2020 has been a tough year. And Seema Modi joins us now with a look at just how hard the industry has been hit. Seema. Well, Tyler, 2020 already devastating for hotels, ending the year on a low note. Hotels won't get to enjoy that holiday bump they typically see at the end of the year. More than 980 million hotel room nights have gone unsold this year. Just to put that number into perspective, that's 40% more than all of last year. Hotel development, once red hot in cities like Manhattan, dried up during the pandemic. Many properties have had to shut their doors. And get this, in cities like Chicago and Houston, more than half of the hotels financed through the commercial mortgage-backed securities market are currently delinquent. And owners of hotels in these markets, they're highly dependent not just on the leisure traveler, but the corporate traveler. Hotels that are struggling are the hotels that are near airports. Uh, near corporate uh, markets where you've got a lot of corporate people that come in and out. And, you know, just looking at some of the buildings that you see around the hotels right now, they're pretty much empty. Vinay Patel owns nine hotels across the East Coast. Pre-COVID, he employed about 200 people. But with fewer guests now and limited housekeeping, he's down to about 120 employees. Tyler. Seema, thank you very much. And that does it for The Exchange. Up next, Power Lunch. 
With the stock up 130% this year, the CEO of MicroStrategy will join us to discuss his Twitter exchange with Elon Musk about transferring Tesla's balance sheet from dollars to Bitcoin. I'll join Rahel Solomon after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 